Lord, we do uh, commit our time to you and praise you as it's already been praised for those answers to prayer and those exciting experiences. And we desire that, in fact, you would be glorified in all these issues and things. So we just uh, commit our time to you, desiring that you would come alive to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to focus on God's justice in relationship to this underlying concept that permeates all of chapter 9, virtually all, at least to verse 29, where Paul is dealing with the nation of Israel, actually 9 through 11, but in chapter 9, he's also taking his readers back to the very beginning. In other words, those Jewish members of the church that existed in the city of Rome. Here's a model of first century Rome. We were discussing a little bit of it before we got started here when some of you had just signed in. But there were many little churches. Some of them were home churches in the city of Rome, and it was composed of both Jew and Gentile. So there was a Jewish contingent. And I'll give you a little review of why we have Romans 9 through 11. But in that, one of the underlying issues is this doctrine of election. And we took a little excursus to take a look at it from a broader perspective. Because in chapter 9, we're dealing with God choosing Israel. And that's part of the issue here. So here's first century Rome. And then there's 21st century Rome with a couple of highlighted monuments that we visited, those of us that were able to go on the uh, Israel-Rome-Athens trip. So anyway, there were Jewish people that would have raised some issues. They would have raised some questions concerning Paul's discussion of chapters 1 through 8, where God has provided his very own righteousness, and uh, he discusses the condemnation of first humanity in general, which the Jew would agree, all are condemned before a holy God. And then in chapter 2 through part of chapter 3, he addresses the Jewish audience and explains that Jews as well are equally condemned and comes to the conclusion that all stand condemned and without God's righteousness, there's none righteous, not even one, including Jew and Gentile. And then he discusses how God is provided justification, and it's provided for both Jew and Gentile. And then chapter 6 through 8, how that righteousness is lived out, and it's lived out apart from the law. So this would raise some issues that we'll get to in a moment, especially to a Jewish audience that uh, may read. And it was also designed for the believers the Jewish believers that were converted to understand what God was doing in terms of the nation of Israel. So in chapters 9 through 11, he's going to vindicate God's righteousness and show that God is perfectly righteous in allowing Gentiles to have this righteousness of of his that he makes available. And he also is vindicating the idea that God is in some way setting aside the nation of Israel as a corporate, national, ethnic entity. So he's going to deal with that in the first part of chapter 9. 
And I divide these chapters into three parts, 9, 1 through 29, where God is absolutely sovereign in choosing Israel. And we've seen where Paul takes the reader all the way back to Abraham and the first descendant, Isaac, and then the second descendant, Jacob. And God in this is sovereignly choosing one individual out of the many, out of the many nations, and he's going to create his own nation sovereignly. And that is his choice. That is his concept. And he also explains that because Israel has rejected Messiah and rejected the gospel, they are in a position of rejection or under God's discipline in this time frame. That's chapter 930 through the end of chapter 10. But God is not done with the nation of Israel. In fact, this counteracts the common theological position that lots of churches have held in the past, historically, and many even today hold to, the idea of the church replacing the nation of Israel in the plan of God. And God is rejecting Israel and no longer dealing with them. That's replacement theology. Chapters 9 through 11 refute that idea. God still has a plan for Israel, and there's a future restoration where all of Israel, in chapter 11, all of Israel shall be saved. Now, that's a corporate salvation. That's an idea that we'll talk about when we get to chapter 11. So, basically, what this raises some issues. The main issue is this gospel going out to Gentiles. And remember, from the Jewish perspective, how can the gospel go out to dogs, these hated, depraved people, non-Jewish people? And Paul, in chapters 1 through 8, is saying that by faith and faith alone, by grace, Gentiles can be accepted and receive this righteousness of God. It's available to Jew and Gentile. How can this be? Because aren't people supposed to come to God through the nation of Israel, through the law, through proselytizing? How can Gentiles freely, by grace, come into a relationship? So a Jew would immediately think in terms of that. He would also think, well, isn't Israel God's chosen people? What happened to God's choice here, God's election? What's going on here? It seems that uh, what you're saying, Paul, is we are kind of set aside and no longer have that privileged position. And remember in the early chapters, he reiterates the privileges of the Jewish people, and he's mourning because they are missing out on what God has in this era. So Gentiles are coming to God apart from the law, and he emphasizes that in terms of sanctification as well. Sanctification comes apart from the Mosaic law. So these are the issues that Paul is going to address in Romans 9 through 11. And in the early verses, he makes a distinction. He talks about all Israel, and he says not all of Israel is part of the family of God. So he distinguishes ethnic or national Israel, represented by the blue circle there. And he makes a distinction. There's a true Israel. He identifies them as children of God or children's of, children of promise that are within ethnic and national Israel. 
And the Abrahamic covenant, the promises of God, the privileges of God are enjoyed only by true Israel. And that'll be the case beyond the church age, but during the church age, this is the reality because Israel as a nation rejected the gospel message. Now, he's not talking about the church here. Chapters 9 through 11 are dealing with Israel. So you need to keep that distinction. In fact, he doesn't even deal with Gentiles until verse 24 in chapter 9, where he's going to begin to introduce the distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. So throughout these chapters, he's dealing with the nation of Israel and making a distinction. And remember, underlying all this is this doctrine of election. As God chose Israel from the beginning as a national entity through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, So also in the first century, after the crucifixion of the Messiah, God now is granting his righteousness to those that he has chosen, which would include, in the church age, Gentiles as well as Jews. So that's kind of the heart of what Paul is doing in these passages. So we have an introduction to the book of Romans, provision of God's righteousness, This is the same outline as the chart. I just got it in outline form. So there's chapter 1, 18 through the end of chapter 8, provision of God's righteousness, 9 through 11, vindication of God's righteousness. And in uh, the first 29 verses here, we have God's past sovereign election of Israel as part of Paul vindicating this idea of God choosing Gentiles now along with also a remnant of Jews. And he's going to deal with these issues in this major section. So we've been looking at the beginning of it, kind of an introduction, first five verses. Paul sorrowful that Israel is missing out and sorrowful that Israel has rejected their Messiah. Sorrowful that Israel is not experiencing the blessings of the privileges. They haven't lost the privileges, There's no such thing as replacement idea here, but Israel is not experiencing the full blessing that God has for them. In fact, they are under God's discipline. So this brings sorrow to Paul, and he vindicates that sorrow. And now he's going to vindicate God's word, 6 through 13. That's where we left off last time. Verse 6, it's not as if the word of God has failed, and he's referring specifically to the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, the promise of Genesis 12 that God enters into covenant in Genesis 15, that has not failed. Even though Israel as a national entity has rejected their Messiah, that has nothing to do with the failure of the word of God. So he's going to vindicate that in 6 through 13. We finished looking at that. And that raises the question when he talks about setting aside Ishmael and the line of Messiah and the nation coming through Isaac, that raises into our minds, in fact, the common idea when we get into this doctrine of election, as we've discussed it, one of the first things that comes to mind, this doesn't seem fair. There seems to be something wrong here. So he's going to vindicate the justice of God, 14 through 18. And that's the passage that we'll look at this morning. It's the same issue that we raise when we think of in the church age, God choosing or there being 
a group that we would call the elect. What about those that are left out? Well, it's the same issue that uh, he's dealing with in terms of what about Ishmael? He's left out. What about Esau? He's left out. He raises both of those in 6 through 13. It almost seems like, isn't this unfair? Why does God choose one over another? And I gave you the background. We won't go over it again, but you need to keep in mind not only the nature of God, what God is like, and Paul's going to develop this concept of the nature of God some more in these passages. And specifically, he's going to deal with God's justice and God's bestowing of mercy upon some. And we're even going to see a hard passage, probably one of the most difficult passages where it says that God even hardens others. So is this unfair? What about the justice of God? So that's what we're going to look at. And he begins by raising the issue of God's justice in uh, verse 14. And just to remind you, we've been dealing with this concept of election. And we took a little bit of an excursus and looked at it from a broader perspective and included election as it relates. In fact, when we think of election, we generally think of the church age and how God has chosen believers and at the same time has uh, passed over others. This doesn't seem fair as well. But now keep in mind, we're talking about the nation of Israel. So the doctrine of election as related to the nation of Israel, a particular category. We've already seen in verses 6 through 9, it's not based solely on physical or natural descent. It's not through Ishmael that the nation is formed and the promises and the privileges flow. It's not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. That's the whole point there. And he even expands that. It's it's not even through Jacob and Esau. It's through Jacob, who is later named Israel, that the nation of Israel comes through. So it's not based solely on physical, natural descent, six or nine. Now that pertains to Israel. So God's election, not based on physical, natural descent. Secondly, we saw in verse 11, a very powerful statement concerning the sovereign purposes of God. In fact, he calls them his electing purpose, where we have the word that comes from the word group. We did a word study to understand the meaning and how Paul is using it in this context. It's part of God's electing purposes. So God has a plan that he is affecting in time. And this plan, from other passages, we get the idea that God set in motion a plan even before he created the universe. So it's part of his sovereign purposes. And it's not dependent on man's works. And he's dealing specifically with Jacob and Esau. In other words, God has already chosen, and the text is explicit, before they were born, before the twins are born, before they had done anything good or bad is what the text says. So it's not dependent on man's works, dependent on God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign purposes. Then in verse 13, the last verse there, which is also a difficult verse, it's rooted in his grace and love. Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. And we looked at that concept and it's from that statement that we have this idea, well, how can God hate some and love some? And what is, you know, we looked at that idea. 
And it's God essentially rejecting some and accepting others. And that introduces all these negative thoughts in our mind as to how does that all fit together. So that's part of what Paul is going to answer beginning in verse 14. So we've already seen four principles relating to God's election, and we'll see a few more in the passage that we have before us today. So verse 14, what shall we say then? This doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound fair. What shall we say? How shall we answer? And he answers the question himself. There's no injustice with God, is there? He knows the thoughts. He knows what he has just said and what it'll elicit within the thinking of his audience. And he phrases it in such a way that a negative answer in the Greek text, it's phrased in such a way that you would anticipate a negative answer. In other words, the answer is no. There's no injustice with God. The answer kind of negates that concept of God being unjust. And if that's not clear enough, he gives the clear answer that we've seen throughout the book of Romans. He will raise an issue, and then sometimes he will emphatically answer it, may it never be. And in the Greek text, the strongest way to set forth a negative response is me guneto. Remember, we've looked at that in some detail well, long ago when we first encountered it, and we've seen it several times. But it has the idea of absolutely not. In other words, far be it. In other words, this is impossible. That's the idea that we have with the Greek phrase there. I like to paraphrase it by saying it's something like what we would say today. Are you crazy? This is not even remotely close to reality. So may it never be. So he answers it emphatically, and then he's going to add to it. Beginning in uh, verse 15, in fact, on the outline sheet that I passed out, he raises the issue, and then he's going to answer it by giving an example from Moses, and then he'll give another answer in terms of a word that's given to Pharaoh, verses 17 and 18. So that's verse 14. There's not a lot to comment there. We'll spend more time on some of the other verses. But it does raise the... Another principle here, it gives us another concept, and he's going to further develop that through verse 18. God's electing purposes does not violate his justice. In fact, he gives the emphatic answer, absolutely not, does not violate God's justice. So even though it doesn't seem right or there seems something missing here, and that reminds me that you need to keep in mind not only the the nature of God, but we also spend a little bit of time of developing the biblical concept of the depravity of man. And we'll come back to that in uh, these verses as well. In other words, God is perfectly just, perfectly righteous. In fact, we've stated that God is not under obligation to depraved humanity in any way. He would have been perfectly righteous to totally destroy Adam and Eve. That would be justice. Had they been killed immediately after sin, God would have been perfectly just. But one of the electing purposes of God was also this concept of salvation, 
and he provided a means. And in Genesis 3, we've looked at that passage several times. God provides a means by which man can be restored. And you have all of the elements of God's redemption in Genesis 3. But God was not under any obligation to save Adam and Eve. So also any of the descendants, God is not under obligation to save any. So the issue is not whether or not God is unjust in passing over some and electing some. But the issue is, is why did God save any? And that's just part of the nature of God. God is also a gracious God, a loving God, a merciful God. And he has set up the universe in such a way that he has chosen some. And he is under no obligation to choose all. So we have already discussed a little bit of that. That's going to be brought out some more in the in the passage we're looking at. So the issue of God's justice is raised in verse 14. And in verses 15 through 16, there we have a word concerning Moses. And keep in mind, Paul's thoughts kind of follow one after another throughout the book of Romans. So you have to kind of keep track of the logic that he carries through as he goes from passage to passage. So he's kind of expanding the idea of God's word being vindicated, but he's dealing with a particular aspect of God's word that deals with God's justice. So he's going to take us to scripture. He's not going to argue philosophically. He's not going to argue intellectually. He's going to take us to an argument from scripture itself. And there's a good pattern that you might follow here in terms of trying to deal with the unbeliever. I think it's good oftentimes to introduce God's word and argue from the perspective of, if not overtly God's word, at least a principle that God has from his word. And that's what he's going to do in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. So let's take a look at that passage. So verse 15 For he says to Moses, and now he quotes, and he doesn't give us any introduction. So we have to kind of look at the context to understand what Paul is saying. Remember, you need to think in terms of you're a good Jewish reader here. So you know the Old Testament. And as Moses is quoted, or the book of Exodus is quoted, it would immediately remind you, oh, this passage comes out of Exodus chapter 33. And what Paul wants you to do is think in terms of context. In fact, we emphasize in order to understand any passage, you have to understand the passage. So let's take a look at, and if you want to turn to chapter 32 of the book of Exodus, and let's look at a few passages to develop the context of what Paul is saying. He just jumps in. And if you noticed in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. How does that answer this issue of the justice of God? So let's take a look at, first of all, and if some of you want to jump in and do some reading from the passage, I've got basically the passage laid out here. But you need to know that uh, we won't read verses 1 through 8. You're familiar with the incident after the law is given and Moses comes down with the law. And remember, he is up on the mountain and he has a conversation with God. And in fact, God informs him of the sin that is taking place 
amongst the children of Israel, the incident of the golden calf. This is after the law had been given and the people had committed to the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And like I said, we won't read verses one through eight, but I think you're familiar with it. In fact, we've looked at it in other contexts. But I want you to look at verses 9 and 10 because they're important in developing this this background before we get to chapter 33. Anyone care to read that one? Anyone have that passage handy there? Did I give you enough lead time to look it up? Go ahead. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and I, and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. So God is proposing here. And I think we have a little bit of a insight into what God is doing in speaking with Moses. He's expressing his anger, obviously over sin. And essentially he is in some ways testing Moses to see how well Moses knows the covenants that God has made and the word that God has already revealed. And he gives him a proposal. But in that proposal, God would be perfectly just and perfectly righteous to basically wipe out all of the children of Israel, including Moses. So that's what is expressed in those verses. Now, he makes a proposal here. I will make of you a great nation. Now, God has already revealed that the nation is going to come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's not going to come through the Levitical line. That's already been revealed. Moses is from the line of Levi. So God is kind of testing Moses here. But the point being is God would be perfectly righteous and just to wipe them all out. Just like Adam and Eve, he would have been perfectly righteous to wipe them out. So also at the Genesis flood, God would have been perfectly righteous to wipe out all of humanity. But because God saves, he saved and provided a means for Adam and Eve. He also provided a means for salvation through Noah's family and the provision of an ark. And now God is proposing another way of uh, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, even though there's an aspect here that could not happen. So Moses passes the test because he understands what the word of God reveals. So Moses speaks in verses 11 through 13. Somebody want to read those verses? Anyone? Go ahead. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Oh, Lord, he and said, by, by the way, why let should me, your anger burn again? By the way, let me interrupt oh, you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Moses sought what? Favor, that's a grace word. Moses sought grace from God. In other words, God is a just God. God is a wrathful God. God is a judgmental God. God is also a gracious God. And Moses is appealing to the gracious aspect. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Keep reading. That's great. Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Oh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? 
Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. So he reminds God, not that God had forgotten or not that God was unaware. I think it's mainly God bringing from within Moses the things that he has already promised and the things that he has already said. And Moses obviously is passing the the exam here and appealing to God on the basis of his graciousness, on the basis of his his past dealings and his covenants and reminding of the integrity of God at stake amongst a lost world. So Moses intercedes, and then we have the wrath is lifted, verse 14. I'll read it real quick. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. I think what we have here is an anthropomorphism. It's portrayed with God as if God forgot or changed his mind. And he's taking a new path. And remember, we've talked about the immutability of God and some of these passages that seem to indicate that God changes his mind. I think it's written from a perspective of mankind. From Moses' perspective, it's as if God, after he announces wrath and makes it clear that this is what is righteous and just, but now God, on the basis of his grace is lifting the wrath. And then we have the confirmation that uh, Moses gives to the children of Israel. We won't read all of these. Would somebody start in verse 21 and read a couple of verses there? This is addressed to Aaron and the children of Israel. Anyone? Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Okay, that's far enough. The main thing you see there, the emphasis on what is deserved, the wrath of God, And the depravity of the children of Israel, they deserve the wrath of God. And basically, Aaron is giving excuses and, you know, hemming and hawing there. But essentially, Moses is confronting them because of their great sin. And when it comes in terms of God, God is under no obligation. But Moses now makes a request. If you go down to verse 30 in terms of of God. Somebody read. Ray. Who's that? Yeah. Ray, this Jim. Jim. Just, uh, it's just good to remember that these are saved people. Yes. Too. Yes. These okay. are saved uh, Israelites, corporately, at least. Okay. Moses' request. Somebody read. You want to do that since you got your mic open there, Jim? 30 to 35. Uh, okay. Uh, what, what verse, Ray? 30. Okay. 32, 30. And it came about on the next day that Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps. 
Keep reading. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Also, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of thy book, which thou hast written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now... Lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf with Aaron, which Aaron had made. And at that point, God could have wiped them all out. But you see elements of grace in the passage in that he's going to continue to work with them. He gives further instruction to Moses after Moses makes his request. And it's in this context that we have 33, this is the next chapter, 18 through 20, God's glory. Somebody want to read those verses. So it's in the context of man's depravity, man's sin, man deserving the wrath of God. It's in the context of Moses interceding and even offering atonement, even himself, if he could be a substitute, he appeals to God. And then in verse 18, notice what it says. 18 through 20. Somebody read that one. Okay, this is Linda. Go ahead. Then, then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. It will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. More? Read 20. Okay, 20. Yeah. And But God said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Because man is depraved. Man is sinful. But he's going to reveal his glory. Moses asks for it. The glory of God is the, you might say, the summary or composite of God's person and attributes. And in this context, his goodness, his power has already been mentioned earlier, but his goodness in this context, and does this passage sound familiar? I will be gracious. And by the way, the Hebrew word there could be translated either mercy and or grace. In some context, the same Hebrew word even in the uh, Septuagint, the, the Greek translation, will have these words interchangeably. So it's an expression of God's grace. And Paul uses the Greek word for mercy in uh, the passage that we're looking at. So it's in that context, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. God is not obligated. This is the answer. In other words, God is not obligated to have mercy on any. In fact, he announces that he's going to judge all. And Moses intercedes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And in the Hebrew text, it's translate, or the English translates the Hebrew as grace. I will have grace on whom I have grace. And the words are somewhat interchangeable, not only in Hebrew, but even in Paul. I think Paul uses those two, there's two different words, charis, is the Greek word L-E-A-O 
or eliao, the Greek word, they're used interchangeably, I think, as well. So that's the first part of the answer. Now that's the quotation, verse 15, and in verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills. In other words, it's not dependent on Israel saying, oh, I, I, let me make a new promise. Let me, uh, let's make a new covenant. Let me, let me do, let me reform my life. Let me change what I'm, the course that I'm on. It does not depend on the man who wills. In other words, God is gracious to whomever he is gracious. It's not dependent on man. God's grace is bestowed freely and sovereignly. That's the whole point here. This is to answer that question. How can you, God, pour out grace and mercy and salvation to the dogs? It does not depend on the dogs. It does not depend on them. It does not depend on man who wills. It's not dependent on the will of man. And uh, we can add to our list of God's choosing and God's election It does not violate man's volition, but it is sovereign and above and beyond man's volition. So it's not a violation of man's volition as well. And it's not dependent on it. And then the last part, or the man who runs, the idea here, he uses a Greek word there that comes from an athletic environment. He's using it in a spiritual sense here, but In some contexts, that same word would be used in terms of a runner in an Olympic Games. In other words, the output of energy, the output of effort and movement, you might say. So it doesn't depend on what man does, what man, in a spiritual sense, the way he runs the course or his life. It's not dependent on that, but on God who has Mercy, in other words, is totally dependent on the free grace of God and the free mercy of God. It's not dependent on man. And in this context, he's talking about God's choosing of the nation of Israel. And he uses an example from the life of Moses. So we can come up with a seventh principle of God's election. It's not dependent on anything in man. Now, if you remember number three up there, He's already mentioned it's not dependent on man's works when he was talking about Jacob and Esau. And now we have kind of the same concept in the time of Moses dealing with the entire nation. So it's the same idea as what you have. It's not dependent on man's works. So also in this context here, it's not dependent on anything in man, verse 16. It's also, it's rooted in his grace and love. So in verse 16, Uh, He will have mercy or grace upon whom he will have mercy. So he's reiterating kind of the same concept that we've already looked at. Any comments on that so far before we move on to the next part of it? He's going to give now a negative example, and this is the one that brings the more theological problems. Any comments? Anyone? We won't complete it, but let's at least get started on it, and then we'll focus on it next week. No comments? So now he's going to give a word to Pharaoh. He spoke in terms of a word to Moses, 15 and 16, 17 and 18, a word to Pharaoh. Remember, he's vindicating the righteousness of God and showing that God is sovereign over his creatures, 
whether they be those that are part of his family, like Moses and the children of Israel, and or those outside. He is sovereign and he can show mercy to whom he shows mercy. But here we have the alternative. He can also even harden those whom he so chooses to harden. We'll see that in verse 18. So now he goes, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, parallel to what he said in verse 15, and in uh, this passage, it's going to remind us of the interaction of Moses and Pharaoh in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. The Moses quotation is after the children of Israel have already left Egypt and are at the foot of Mount Sinai and the receiving of the Ten Commandments. Now, the example of Pharaoh goes before that to the early chapters of the book of Exodus when the children of Israel were still in Egypt. And uh, he takes a quotation from uh, the early chapters there from Exodus chapter 9. So let's develop the context of the passage dealing with uh, Pharaoh. But he states... We can begin by saying, for this very purpose, I raised you up, addressing Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole world. So in this plan, this electing plan of God, this big plan that God has for humanity in general, it involves the unbeliever as well. And Pharaoh would be the epitome of those that resist God and are antagonistic to the children of God. So he takes the prime leader of the nation of Israel, and now he gives the other extreme in terms of the great oppressor of the children of Israel, even before they were a nation. So he uses Pharaoh as his example. And he states, for this very purpose, very strong statement, very interesting statement in the context, God is not unjust in how he deals with the unbeliever. God is not unjust in the way that he deals with the believer. So he can deal with each according to his free grace and free sovereign choice. Go ahead. Okay, well... uh Again, uh, as we go along here, uh, I think it's important too, and this is because of the kind of the contemporary, really Reformation view. It's also important, I think, to notice that he says he raised him up. It didn't say he created him for this purpose. Right, right, exactly. Very good point. And by the way, that that little quotation in the Hebrew could even have the idea, I, I sustained you even. It can have that idea in the Hebrew text, not so much in the uh, Romans 9 passage, but the, the Hebrew word that is used there could be, I'm not saying that that's the meaning in the uh, Exodus chapter 9 passage, but it has this idea of, not, as you point out, not creation. It could have the idea of preserving him. And we're going to get into the concept of God long-suffering later on in the next passage after uh, beginning in, in verse 19. So that's a good good comment there. So, and Ray, go ahead. I, if I can just join in, too. This is Mary Lee. Yes. I, uh, I also see in this that sometimes we, we in ourselves may acknowledge that God is powerful, but then you have very powerful peoples around you who have 
seemed to have more power than God. And for the uh, Israelites, Pharaoh would have seemed to have more power even than God because he was absolute supreme ruler over Egypt. But God raised Pharaoh up to demonstrate that even Pharaoh and all of the gods that supposedly supported him and supported and sustained his reign over Egypt had no effect against God's plans. Very good. Exactly. In fact, you're one step ahead of me as usual. Uh, And Ray, let me, this bill, let me step back a chapter. Not only did God harden Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yeah, we'll get into all of that. We're going to get into all of that. In fact, in the next series of slides here. So let's pick up and we'll develop all of these other ideas that you, you all are already anticipating. And, uh, notice there is a purpose for God's plan. And in this context, it's specific in terms of Pharaoh and the children of Israel. There's a particular plan that God is working out. And he's revealing here, in fact, he reveals this in the book of Exodus, what he's doing. He's going to announce ahead of time what he's doing. He's demonstrating his glory, basically. He's revealing his power specifically to demonstrate my power in you. Now, this is addressed to Pharaoh. And in a sense, it's a reminder of what God had already revealed earlier. So let's take a look at that and go back and look at these purposes of God. And there's two of them that are outlined here. One of them is to display God's power. And I've got just kind of a background slide there to give you a perspective of the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian empire. And to kind of camp on what Mary Lee said, the Egyptian empire was the world power of that day. Pharaoh himself was worshipped. As a God, and as Mary Lee pointed out, sometimes we get overwhelmed in our thinking and think that we're in a situation, whether it be with an individual that is more powerful or circumstances that are overpowering us. The whole point of this is God is greater than whatever pressures, whatever individuals may be oppressing you or harassing you. So also like in Egypt, this powerful empire, God is using the circumstance to bring glory to himself and to display his power. And overall, the plagues and the exodus itself, the plan that God had was to display his power over the Egyptian gods. And they are very specific. He refutes the the power of their gods. They're, They're powerless before the sovereign power that was going to deliver the children of Israel from the Egyptian uh, empire. Now, remember, this is before the Exodus. So you can look at every one of the plagues, and each one is a polemic against the the gods behind them. And on walls of these temples and different places throughout Egypt, and by the way, I didn't take this photograph. I took the other photograph and some of the other photographs you'll see. But you can see these very clearly all over the monuments in Egypt, and most of them depict a god, in this case, Osiris and the worshipers that come and offer things to their gods. 
Isis female god, just so that we're more inclusive here as we need to be nowadays, right? <laughs> Uh, but these gods, you can go through each one of them and tie them to each of the plagues. I've got some that are represented. For example, Osiris was the god of the Nile. So they worship the Nile. And what does God do? He turns the waters of the Nile into blood, showing that he is more powerful than Osiris. One of the plagues is he brings the god of the frogs, Hecht, and God multiplies the frogs, and then he removes the frogs. He's sovereign over that god. Insects, there's another god associated with them. The beasts, like the cattle, there's another god that uh, was over the beasts. They worshipped all of these animals and insects and the water, the Nile. It was like the lifeblood of Egypt, the Nile. So all of these were worshipped. The boils, another God, a God of health and uh, well-being, uh, even hail. They worship the atmospheric phenomenon as well. And you can find a tie to each one of these. The darkness, the sun god, Ray and Horus. These were gods associated with the sun and the moon and astrological bodies. And God is sovereign over them and he brings this deep darkness And you can go through some of the others that are also noted in there. And what he's doing is he's refuting the Egyptian gods and showing that he is more powerful and more sovereign. So his omnipotence, the omnipotence of Yahweh and the the weakness of the Egyptian gods in contrast. And through it all, it destroyed the economy of the Middle Kingdom, of which is the time frame in which Moses and these incidents take place. In fact, you could even say that it probably destroyed, after the Exodus, it destroyed the entire Middle Kingdom, because not only is their economy destroyed, the crops, the animals, but in the Exodus, the whole military apparatus was destroyed as well. You might say that possibly the entire Middle Kingdom was destroyed. God demonstrating his power the focus is upon a god, the, the Pharaoh, who is worshipped as a god, and God is dealing with him. Ray, the, what do you mean by middle kingdom? The, uh, well, the Egyptian pharaohs, you can arrange them in different time frames. This would be in the 1400 BC time frame, which archaeologists identify as the middle kingdom. There are preceding dynasties of Egyptian pharaohs that preceded it, and then there's dynasties after as well. Does that make sense? Archaeologists identify the Middle Kingdom as probably the time frame that these passages are are dealing with. I can give you some of the pharaohs. I don't have them. Thank you. Okay, good enough. Now he adds this purpose that God has raised up, specifically pharaoh, but even broader than pharaoh. Pharaoh represented the Egyptian entire empire. And we're not going to be able to develop all of that here, but let me just get into it and then we'll pick up next week or leave off. Not only that, not only is he demonstrating power, but he's also showing that his name might be proclaimed throughout the world, the whole earth. God is presenting something that is objective and observable and would be reported throughout the entire world. 
And what the second purpose here, not only to display his power, but to proclaim his name. And this is illustrated when you get to the, the book of Exodus. This is years later. This is when the children of Israel are going to, in fact, at least over 40 years later, after the incidents that we're talking about here, the world remembered what God did with the children of Israel. And here's just an example from the book of Joshua. Now, remember, this is, uh, uh, what's her name? The, the harlot. Rahab. Rahab. There you go. Rahab, the, the harlot. She's the one that's in view here. And she said that the spies, the men are the spies in Joshua 2, 9 through 11. But notice what she says. And this reflects even the low, lowest of that culture. This is the Canaanite culture in uh, Canaan. I know that the Lord has given you the land. So the, the proclamation of God giving the children of Israel the land, this was common knowledge. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. In other words, our day is over. Our day is up. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. In other words, the Canaanites, they have no energy, no motivation. Because they know the terror of the Lord. Then verse 10, for we have heard, what did they hear? They heard that proclamation that went out to the whole world in the time of Moses. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Couldn't be any more specific. And if you look at the end of verse 11, for the Lord your God, he is God. He is the only God. This is a confession of faith by the prostitute here. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And if you remember, she is one of the Canaanites that will survive the conquest. And we have mention of her later on in the New Testament, indicating that she was a, a believer in the one true God, Elohim and Yahweh, or the Lord, as it's translated there. So the revelation of God, of his power, and the proclamation of what God is doing was evident. And it was evident to the children of Israel in that they saw all of the miracles of the plagues, and they saw a demonstration of the power at the Exodus, and they were delivered, and they were enriched as well. And the text tells us that 603,550 males went through the, the the Exodus. And if that's only the males, if you include women and children, somewhere in the range of two to three and a half million people went through the Exodus. And just to wake some of you up, and bring it close to home. Just a little cartoon for your amusement. The next verse I'm going to save for next time. Let me just introduce it. And this is probably a good place. This is a difficult verse that we'll have to spend some time on. Verse 18. He's kind of summarizing here. So then he, referring to God, has mercy on whom he desires Children of Israel, head, headed by Moses, is an example of those he bestowed mercy, but also he hardens whom he desires, Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian culture and empire is what he has in view here, and specifically the hardening 
of Pharaoh. So let's take a look at this concept and we'll go back into the book of Exodus next time and trace through what's going on here and uh, try to explain why this is an example that uh, Paul gives to explain that God is perfectly righteous, perfectly just in doing whatever he does in mercy with Moses and the children of Israel, and even this negative idea of hardening someone like a Pharaoh. Any comments? This is probably a good place to stop, and then we'll pick up in verse 18 next time. Any comments or questions? Make sense? Silence means everybody's asleep and or no questions. Everything calm. Who'd like to close for us in a word of prayer before we leave today? Before we close, uh, you were going to mention something about Ukraine today. Okay, go ahead and close. And then if you want to close, then I'll uh, mention Ukraine. Lord, we praise you for the fact that we can study your word and understand more of what you how, what you really are and how you have worked through the ages. And we just pray that you'll help us to be able to uh, apply this in our lives in everyday situations, remembering your power and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Closing thought. God is free. God is free to bestow love and mercy. And you could add even hardening in his sovereignty and include his wisdom. God is a wise God in all of his dealings. Any other comments? No comments. Anyone want to say goodbye before we shut down here? See you all later. Thanks, Ray. See you. Have a great week. See you, Connie. Nice to hear from everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.